getting discomfortable with trauma. <laughs> I like how I say that word. Like it's something really cool. Trauma. Getting discomfortable with trauma. When I think of trauma, the following metaphor comes to mind. You're a kid. You're like nine years old, and you're at the local swimming pool, and there's a bunch of kids around, and one of your friends dares you to go to the very top of the diving board platform and jump off. You know, it's like one of those platforms with like three different diving boards at different levels. And you're like, whatever, sure, I can do it, no problem. So you walk up to the first platform, and then you walk up to the second platform, and then you walk up to the third platform, and you tiptoe out to the edge and look down, and suddenly you freeze. There is no way you can jump off of this thing. So you retreat backwards, and you turn around and you look at the stairs. But then you realize everyone, it seems, is looking at you. As if the entire swimming pool, the entire community is looking up at your momentous moment of decision-making. And if you go back down, you will be laughed at and mocked. But if you go forward, you will literally die, or so it seems. So you kind of just get frozen. You get caught right in the middle of that diving board. You can't go off, and you can't go down. So you just kind of collapse into a ball until some adult or parent or lifeguard comes up and essentially carries you down. Not only is that literally a traumatic experience, but it's kind of a perfect metaphor for what trauma is. It's that moment where you can't jump, but you can't retreat. So you're just frozen. You just kind of shut down. You can't deal. There is no solution in which you feel you can come out safely. So you just kind of leave your body. You, you almost dissociate. You, you have an out-of-body experience or, or you shut down or you collapse. It's, it's almost your body's way of saying, I don't think you can handle this experience. If this experience, if this feeling, if this event runs through you, if you, if you actually feel it and if you're actually conscious of it, it will destroy you. It, it will literally break you. It might even kill you. So your brain kind of spirits you away so that you don't have to face it, so that you don't have to experience it or feel it. But from that day forward, part of you is always stuck at the top of that diving board. It's this hyper-awareness, this unfinished business around whatever that triggering event was, whatever the trauma was. And anything that reminds you of that event, anything similar, anything that triggers it, will put you right back into that freeze state or that collapse or that disassociation. It will just stop you in your tracks. It will spirit you away such that you don't have to face or confront or act in any way that might hurt you. It seems crazy, but it's actually a survival mechanism. Of course, like everything that we experience, it's about survival. 
trauma is a way for our body to protect us from feelings and experiences that we can't handle and from doing things or getting ourselves into situations which in the past have proved extremely dangerous or traumatic. So not only are you metaphorically stuck on top of the diving board, but literally the next time you go to the public pool, you will not even consider the diving board. If you have experienced that kind of trauma, then as if you're going to climb back up the diving board, even just like walking by it is going to make you kind of get into a slightly prohibitive freeze state. You, you literally won't be able to walk up the steps towards it. It's your body stopping you and protecting you from getting anywhere near that situation of intense danger. Your body thinks, we almost died the last time we did that, so there's no way we're going to do it again. I'm literally going to shut you down. I'm going to close up shop. I'm going to crash the system before I allow you to even approach that situation again. That is the utility of trauma. So actually, when you think about it, trauma is a form of learning, an extremely rapid and powerful lesson about survival. The way we normally learn things, like in school, is a cognitive process. You know, we are, we are memorizing patterns into our prefrontal cortex, you know, our, our logical, modern human brain, and it takes a lot of repetition and memorization, and it's, it's a very slow and gradual process. That's how we normally think of learning. But trauma is essentially a more primal form of learning in which we learn lessons about how to survive almost instantaneously. And this makes sense. If we needed to learn survival lessons cognitively, the way that we learn our ABCs, we would all be dead. You know, imagine a hunter-gatherer confronting a tiger and being like, Oh, right, a tiger. I've seen a tiger before. What am I supposed to do around a tiger again? Hmm. We needed a better mechanism to survive. We needed a way to learn lessons about survival instantaneously that we would never forget that would be so powerful as to embody the old adage that George W. Bush screwed up. Fool me once, shame on fool. <laughs> oh, burn. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. That is the lesson that trauma wants to teach us. We will not be fooled a second time. Assuming that we even survive whatever the first traumatic learning experience is. So trauma is our perfect teacher. The problem is, we often learn these trauma lessons that we never need to know again. We experience some kind of freak accident, or we experience an event as a lot more frightening and unpleasant than it really is because we're just a child. When we are an undeveloped minor, certain experiences can seem deeply, powerfully frightening in a way that our body interprets as an extremely important survival lesson. And, and maybe at that age, it really was. 
But as adults, we get kind of trapped in these traumatic lessons, and it becomes maladaptive, which is to say it's not actually helping us survive. In fact, it's probably hindering our survival now. This is why situations like going to war can be so traumatic and so problematic, because when you're not in war anymore, those survival lessons are no longer particularly useful or valid. So your body reacts to these common occurrences that are triggering these old war memories in ways that shut you down when really there isn't any danger present anymore. So the lesson was too perfect, and it doesn't actually connect to the reality of the world that we normally live in anymore. And so trauma can limit our life, our capabilities, our well-being is negatively impacted by these powerful yet anachronistic lessons that are basically ingrained in our body. And that's the thing about trauma. It's not cognitive. It is not something that you memorized into your prefrontal cortex like math. No, trauma lives in your body. Trauma is connected to the more ancient parts of your brain, like your limbic system, which deals with emotion, and your amygdala, which deals with your fight or flight reflex. I'm no expert in trauma. In fact, I'm not an expert in anything. I'm, I'm not even an expert in shame, I should remind you. I'm just a guy who has a lot of shame and thinks a lot about shame and reads a lot about shame and takes a lot of classes about shame. But really, I'm kind of just figuring this stuff out as much as anyone else. And trauma is very much on my learning edge right now. So bear with me. The, everything I'm telling you now is really just kind of my early conceptions of what trauma is. It's, it's like my mental model that I'm working with right now, but I don't really fully understand the science of how trauma works. But there's no question that the way trauma operates is on a somatic, physical level. And no amount of thinking is going to stop our trauma from arising. No amount of thinking is going to heal our trauma because our trauma doesn't live in our rational prefrontal cortex. As humans, we, we love to think of ourselves, especially in Western culture, as this very rational, logical being that isn't controlled by our lower primitive instincts and emotions. So we like to think that we can think our way out of emotions and trauma, but we can't. I'm sure there's some utility to top-down processing, but the real healing seems to lie in allowing ourselves to feel through our trauma, allowing ourselves to complete the emotional experience that we froze when we were at the top of that metaphorical diving board. I think our body freezes that process in order to kind of ingrain us with a type of hypervigilance. We can't complete the action because we need to stop the action in order to survive, or that's what we think. And so that, that bit of unfinished business, that frozen process, that kid trapped at the top of the diving board, is in our brain somewhere all the time. This hyper-awareness, looking around, making sure that nothing reminds us of that event. And if anything does, it goes into full trauma lockdown. It takes over and it crashes the system. 
So trauma is intentionally leaving us in this unfinished business, this frozen, hypervigilant state, because that is the safest way to protect us from ever endangering ourselves in that specific way again. I think this connects with the reason why it's so counterproductive to try to avoid feeling our emotions. On a very low level, every time we try to stop feeling an unpleasant emotion or run from it or repress it or numb it, we are getting into the territory of trauma where we are essentially saddling ourselves with some permanent unfinished emotional business, which is kind of like this traumatic hyper-awareness that we have to carry around with us all the time. That means we can never fully relax because we're on this this alert. We're constantly on the alert to some degree to not allow that unpleasant emotional process to finish. I recently took a class with Peter Levine, who is one of the leading thinkers on trauma, and he is the founder of a therapeutic modality called somatic experiencing. And Peter Levine talks a lot about allowing people who are caught in trauma to complete the protective actions that they got caught in. He guides his clients through these largely physical movements in his sessions in order to help them and their body complete that process and complete that feeling and allow that emotion to actually regulate which is usually accompanied by really powerful catharsis in terms of tears or often shaking. You know when you get really frightened or really panicked or in a really intense situation and your body literally starts to shake? And we normally try to stop that because we think it looks weak or embarrassing or or pathetic somehow, like we're literally shaking in our boots? Actually, that shaking, that tremoring is our body's way of processing and regulating traumatic experiences. So once again, here we are trying to avoid something because culturally we think it's embarrassing. But really, that's our body healing itself. So we have all of these cultural misguided strategies about not feeling emotions, not showing emotions, not letting our body shake, not expressing unpleasant feelings, not feeling unpleasant feelings. And all of those cultural strategies are actually counterproductive. They're actually trapping us in trauma. Allowing ourselves to feel those unpleasant emotions, allowing our bodies to react however they need to, be it sobbing or screaming or shaking, and allowing ourselves to really just feel the unpleasantness and the fear and the terror and let it work through us and pass seems to be a much more healthy process so that we don't get stuck in that intense and almost crippling endless lesson that is trauma. The reason I'm so interested in learning more about trauma is because shame is arguably a form of trauma. Shame is also one of our most rapid and powerful teachers. 
the shame that we feel for not being able to dive off of the top diving board while everyone is watching is part of the traumatic lesson that says, I will never climb a diving board ever again. One time, one experience, one embarrassing, shaming moment at the top of a diving board, and the lesson is learned, never again. Shame is a form of trauma learning related to social survival. Given that as hunter-gatherers, belonging in the tribe meant survival, and being rejected meant death, shame is just as powerful and just as primary a form of trauma as any other type of life-threatening situation. And as I've said in the past, Shame is an aversive emotion, which means it doesn't want us to feel it. Like physical pain, shame's message is, don't feel me. If you are feeling me, do whatever you can to stop feeling me. Shame is literally trying to tell us to traumatize ourselves. Freeze this process, shame says. Stop feeling me now, and by doing so, you will never forget this moment, this bit of unfinished business, this hypervigilance around this embarrassing social situation will haunt you forever, and that is how shame wants it. That is how shame teaches you so quickly and rapidly not to do something that might get you kicked out of the group. So like trauma, shame is deeply embedded in your body. But what's interesting is that shame also populates itself with all of these cognitive interpretations. So shame is both a thought and a feeling at once. It's an embodied belief. And I think that there is, as I've said before, power to thinking your way out of shame. But I think the real healing, again, because shame is a form of trauma, often goes in the reverse direction. It's about healing shame by feeling it and moving through it rather than trying to think your way out of it. Because when you let the feeling of shame pass, the thoughts of shame will often go with it. You know, we we think (laughs) that we interpret ourselves as having done something embarrassing, and then we feel shame. But I think it's actually the other way around. We feel shame, and then our brain steps in, using cognitive dissonance to reverse engineer the explanation, oh, I've done something embarrassing. And because our culture is so obsessed with this idea that we are logical, rational beings, we try to convince ourselves that it's true, that the thoughts come first and the feelings come second. We don't want to believe that some ancient, primal, emotional part of our brain is actually controlling us and stimulating our thoughts, which we think are our conscious choice. I think, therefore I am, not I feel. Therefore, I think I am. So shame is a teacher. It is a powerful trauma lesson about how to fit in and therefore survive. And as children, our identities and our very sense of reality is constructed by these traumatic shame lessons. We do something 
and our caregivers react positively, we are rewarded by feel-good, pleasant emotions in our body, and that says, do more of that. And then we do something else, and our caregivers are unhappy and angry or disgusted or, or ignoring us, and we get filled with these unpleasant sensations, like shame, as a punishment that says, don't do that. And these guardrails of pleasant and unpleasant affect guide us in this powerful but unconscious way that completely conditions us to see reality in a certain way. It conditions the way that we speak. It it, it conditions the language that we speak. It conditions the way that we think, the, the way that we act, the things that we consider good and bad. It conditions our morals, our behaviors. It conditions everything to such a degree that we can't even see outside of it. And part of the reason we can't see that conditioning is because pretty much everyone around us has been conditioned in more or less the exact same way. When you and everyone around you is traumatized in the same way, it doesn't seem like trauma. In an insane world, the sane man seems insane. Or whatever the saying is. It's that kind of idea. We are all traumatized to not walk around naked outside. We are all traumatized to not say certain words that are considered offensive. We are all traumatized to find most bodily fluids abhorrent, etc., 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 The list goes on and includes pretty much everything about your life. In fact, the only time that we call trauma trauma is when you accidentally get traumatized by something unusual. When you get into a car accident and from then on you are too traumatized to drive around in these racing metal death machines that we call cars, then suddenly that is a problem and it's called trauma. It's only a problem because we haven't all been traumatized in the same way. So that difference, that inability to fit in, that that inability to work in culture because of this rare and unique trauma you've developed around cars, means that you aren't able to fit in and therefore you need help and, and you need healing. And there are ways to help you and heal you. But once you start to understand shame, you realize that a lot of the things you take for granted as normal and obvious and good and bad and right and wrong are just arbitrary traumas that we all have. And you could, theoretically, heal them. Well, (laughs) maybe not. These traumatic lessons of shame that have conditioned us they do seem to be kind of permanent. You know, I was taught through shame, conditioning, and trauma that being gay was not okay. And we were all taught that in Western culture in my age range, in fact. But it was a particularly powerful lesson for me because I actually was gay. So there's all kinds of people who were traumatized in the exact same way as me around homosexuality, but because they're not gay, it's just not that big of an issue for them. But for me, it really was because it, it was this deep sense of, oh no, I don't fit in with the collective trauma around this topic. What am I going to do? So I've had to confront that trauma. I've had to confront that shame conditioning. And I've realized that 
no matter how much cognitive work I do to counteract it, there's always some kernel of that shame trauma lesson of homophobia somewhere inside of me. And so trying to completely get rid of it doesn't seem to be the best strategy. In fact, the strategy that seems to have the most utility for me seems to be to accept it. When I accept that that bit of trauma is conditioned and ingrained into me over decades and decades, then I'm able to see it and talk about it and feel it and express it and work with it, work around it, adapt to it so that it doesn't control me anymore. And interestingly, I think that by accepting it and talking about it and expressing it and adapting to it, I actually am slowly, slowly, slowly changing it. But if I try to directly change that conditioning, if that is my direct goal and I'm like hammering away at it, it never works. It's almost like, for me at least, if I want to change these deep conditionings that I no longer think are serving me, I actually have to accept them first and learn to manage them. And in that process, there is hope for change. Ever so gradual change. So when I say that we can look at all of these norms in our lives that have been enforced by shame, trauma, and conditioning, it may not be so that we can change them. It's more that we can then be aware of them and manage them in ways that offer more possibility and and more choice in our lives. Some of our conditioning is going to be something you agree with. You're going to be like, oh, I'm, I'm glad that I have that kind of hammered into me such that I don't even have to think about it. I just immediately do what I think is the right thing. But there will be other conditionings, things like racism and sexism and patriarchy and concepts around money and capitalism and self-worth and competition and comparison and hierarchy, all of these things related to shame that you might not want to be controlled by. And understanding that those are products of arbitrary cultural trauma allows you to see that they're not your reality. It allows you to disidentify with them. It allows you to create some space and say, well, I may not be able to change this exactly, but what other possibilities are there? What other ways to be are there? What other ways to think? What other decisions could I make if I could see around that obstacle? And that's really what I'm trying to get at with all of this shame work, that these lessons from shame and trauma that have been conditioned into us that kind of shape our very view of reality don't have to be quite as real, quite as controlling, quite as limiting as they are. It's worth noting that working with trauma is probably not something you want to do by yourself in the comfort of your own home. It is a very powerful survival instinct, and deep trauma can and literally is designed to completely crash your system, to to make you dissociate, to make you leave your body, to, to make you collapse or crumble or flood with emotion. 
it is an extremely dangerous kind of martial law, this kind of um, emergency service that takes over. So I highly recommend that you deal with it with the help of someone trained to deal with trauma, like a therapist or perhaps one of Peter Levine's somatic experiencing practitioners. These are helping professionals who know how to just dip into your trauma ever so slightly and allow a tiny bit of safe release, allow a tiny bit of that emotion, that catharsis, that energy to to be regulated. Because if you try to regulate it all at once, you could re-traumatize yourself and that would just, you know, be more of the same problem. So these trauma specialists can help you to titrate, which is to just release a little bit of the trauma at a time. And through a series of sessions, you can kind of get it all out of your system such that you get back to your equilibrium, such that that hypervigilance has now been put off duty, that that process has been completed in a safe environment without re-traumatizing yourself, without forcing you to climb to the top of that diving board in your mind once again. Because our limbic system and our amygdala cannot tell the difference between fantasy and reality. So even just retelling your traumatic story or thinking about it is enough for your system to think, oh shit, this is happening again, and go into full crash again. And every time you go into that full crash, you're just reinforcing that trauma lesson. So working with a professional is like taking one step up the diving board each session, such that by the end, it's just a tiny release to get the last of that hypervigilance out of your system. And it's going to involve probably a lot of that trauma shaking, a lot of that catharsis, probably tears. It's not going to be super pleasant. But I find that, as I said in the episode I did about sobbing, those big cathartic emotional releases make you feel amazing afterwards. Post-sob is akin to post-orgasm. Your whole system just feels like blissed out. And I'm sure the same is true once you finally allow trauma to regulate. There's this fascinating... I don't know what to call it. I guess it's another therapeutic modality called TRE. And I don't know what TRE stands for. You can Google it. But it's basically these stretches and body positions which cause your body to do that involuntary shaking that it does when it's trying to process trauma. So you, it's kind of like a, you do like 20 minutes of these rather intense stretches, and then you get into a kind of bridge position with your knees in the air and your pelvis thrusted at just the right angle. And when you get it just right, you, you start to experience this like uncontrollable shaking. I, I was skeptical, but I did it and it actually worked. And it just allows your body to kind of shake out all of this stored up trauma energy. And for some people, it can be extremely cathartic in a similar way to sobbing. It's like all of these embarrassing emotional reactions in our body that we want to hide actually are so valuable and healthy and healing. And when you do them, you feel great afterwards. 
And when you don't do them, you're actually creating a little bit of trauma. You're actually like storing all of these unfinished hyper alert processes in your body such that you never can fully relax. Part of you is always looking out to make sure that that delicate unfinished process never gets finished because it thinks that's the best way to survive. It's, it's like having somebody on guard around your house at all times. It's like having this bodyguard employed at every moment. If some part of you is on watch, is being hypervigilant around the most scary and traumatic things you've ever experienced, then yeah, you, you probably are a lot safer. But once again, it's worth noting that our body's core value is survival, not well-being. Our body doesn't care if we're not super happy as long as we're alive. But my point with shame and with trauma is that we have an opportunity in the modern world, which is a very relatively safe place compared to when we were hunter-gatherers. We have an opportunity to make our value well-being instead of just being. So yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with keeping trauma and being protective, especially if there really are dangers around every corner. But if there isn't, if you're not actually in these dangerous situations that cause the trauma anymore, then you don't actually necessarily need to live like that. And I think that if you seek out help and healing, you can let those traumas go, or at very least, you can become conscious of them, and as I said before, learn to manage them and adapt to them so that they don't control you. And that is just an opportunity to live your life with a lot more well-being. Now, as an adult, you can find yourself on top of that metaphorical diving board, and you can look over the edge and decide, maybe now I am finally strong enough to dive off. Or you can turn around and say, maybe now I am finally mature enough to walk myself back down. <laughs>